We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. Hey, it's Anna. Last week, we shared some of your one-night stand stories, mostly positive reflections on fleeting, no-strings-attached encounters. But it also got us thinking about a story we shared a few years back, about a one-night stand that had deep, lasting, and painful consequences. It's also a really beautiful story. So we're sharing that with you again this week. Stick around for the end to hear an update. Do you think you were a father? Yeah. Is it past tense? Yeah, probably. I wouldn't consider myself a father now. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Please, they're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Are you guys like boyfriend, girlfriend? And need to talk about more. I've always admired men like your father. Wealthy, but not stuffy. I'm Anna Sale. Six years ago, when Tony was in his mid-twenties, he was working as a bartender and a photographer in a western college town. One night after work and after a few drinks, he hooked up with a woman he dated back in high school. It was just pretty random. The whole thing just kind of happened really fast and then was over. Then, a few weeks later, she told him she was pregnant. There was a really, really, really long silence after she told me because I was pretty careful with what I wanted to say or was planning to say. I needed to, like, think about it for for sure. And um, I told her that it was her choice, everything. And if she chose to keep it, then I would be a good dad and I would take care of her and the baby. And I did give her a disclaimer that night and said that I didn't want to start a relationship with her because of a child. Did you say, are you sure it's mine? Um, yeah, we kind of talked that over, and um, it was just a brief, like, you know that this is, this is mine, and she said, yeah. 
Tony kept the pregnancy a secret from his family and friends for a few months. I was freaking out. But he started going to doctor's appointments with the baby's mother. They took parenting classes together. And he was in the room when the baby was born. I cut her umbilical cord. And the first time I really remember holding her was just later that afternoon um, after she was all cleaned up. And um, the nurse just plopped her right in my lap and we just hung out. What's the feeling you remember when you were looking down at her that first day? Um, just that I needed to, I had a lot to figure out, but I was determined to do that for her, to figure out how to be a good dad, to make money, to provide for her. She was mine. I was really proud of the fact that I created that. For the first few months, the baby spent most of her time at her mother's house. Tony would go over there a lot. But after the baby would take a bottle, Tony says he started taking care of her at his place a few days a week. I played guitar for her every time she took a bath. So we'd, we'd play guitar, and then we'd FaceTime with my parents, and that was always fun. A little girl in a bathtub being serenaded with a guitar is pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a good little swimmer. She made a mess anyways, but it was fun. <laughs> hey. <laughs> there was a lot of laughter between me and her. We played a lot. We were just really good buddies, you know. It felt good to have purpose, and it felt amazing to love something so much in a completely new way. But as the baby grew into a toddler, Tony's relationship with her mother became more and more strained, especially around money. I started paying, like, child support from a couple months before she was born just to help out. So we did that, and we started to have kind of a just mutual agreement. Um, but it's, that's tough to, to, to hold on to. Um, without getting a professional to say, like, okay, we just need to lay down some ground rules. And at that time, I think I was working three jobs, and it made things really tense at times. Um, and then money just became, it was just not good. Was there ever, did a judge grant a certain amount of child support and codify what your custody sharing was going to be? No, that was the process that we were going through was all of that legal stuff kind of at the peak of me going, I need to get this test taken. Because at that point, I was having doubt. When did you have that first flash of, I'm not sure if this child is mine? I maybe had doubts at about a year. Like, her eyes were starting to be darker and darker. I have, like, blue-green eyes, and her mother has hazel eyes, and she has this, like, crazy curly hair. When she was little, she just... She still has it, but... Like, wild. People in the community would be like, where does she get that hair? You know, like, where does she... You know? I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> That's, 
I really don't. I couldn't play it dumb forever. I had talked to two of my my best friends at the time and said I was thinking about doing it about a week before. And you could almost like feel a sense of relief on their faces too. Like it was something that they had thought about, but maybe didn't ever want to talk to me about. Was there part of you that thought, I'm, I don't want to know? Yeah, totally. That's, I think, why it took so long for me to do it. That's not something that you want to know, especially when you love something so much. How old was the baby when you had the test? She was almost 16 months, I think. How did you, what was, what did the test involve? How did you do it? Um, you just show up and they do a cheek swab. Did you take her? You just her? sign a couple documents and yeah, I took her in. And since I was the legal guardian, um, I didn't have to have mother's consent. And so I just went and. How did you get the results? Through the, through a phone call. I was at work and then, um, the woman gave me this statistical analysis of the DNA and ended with, you have a 0% probability of being the father. I didn't really know what to say. Just kind of in shock, but almost expecting it. Why did it matter? What do you mean? Why did it matter if she was mine or not? I think it's just biology. I think there's something that you need to know that that's your, your baby, you know? And I just didn't want to be living like a lie or be lied to. When you saw the baby next after getting the results, did it feel different? Yeah. It was, man, it was, it was really sad for me. I felt really guilty. Sorry. It's okay. Take your time. I just felt really guilty to feel that way. Guilty to feel which way? Just to feel different. It was nothing to do with me and my daughter's relationship. And I knew all of that stuff was so genuine. And that was why it was so hard and why I felt so guilty about feeling that way. Was because what we had was so real. I mean, I was her father. Even with the results in my hand, I was her father. Because... I raised her and she was my little girl and I loved her. But the reality was it wasn't going to pan out that way. We talked with the mother of the baby. She confirmed the details of this story and said she didn't want to comment further. Coming up. I think he texted me about talking about getting together and it might have. I thought you reached out to me, but maybe we did. Who knows? I don't remember. <laughs> Tony meets his daughter's other father. The way I've lived my life, it was kind of one of those things like, well, who didn't expect my first child to come this way? 
you know, in some sort of a, you know, Maury Povich style moment, you know. Earlier this week, I called up Sister Josephine Garrett. I first talked with her in 2018 about deciding to become a nun in her late 20s after she'd worked her way up in the banking industry. Sister Joe is now 40 and lives in a convent in East Texas. I reached out to her to hear how she and the other nuns she lives with are holding up after the winter storms and power emergencies in Texas. We felt trapped because even if we wanted to leave, we couldn't because we live on a hill and we Everyone, we were watching people sliding down the hill by our house all week. Sister Joe told me that being trapped at home and not being able to get out and help was a lot like what she and everyone has been dealing with during this last year of pandemic. Feeling a loss of control and being in our heads a lot. The pandemic, it took away all of our busyness. And so when that noise goes away, the volume is turned up not only on our defects, but also on our strengths. The reality of who we are is more clear and louder. And some of that's beautiful and some of it's not beautiful. Sister Joe and I talked over Zoom, and you can watch our 20-minute catch-up conversation on Instagram and Facebook, where she also admitted to me that she's had her own not-so-beautiful moments. So it was last weekend, and like someone said something, and I like had an image of myself just like body slamming her. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey, I want to tell you about a podcast that I really enjoy called Search Engine. It's hosted by PJ Vogt, and each week he and his team answer these perfect questions. The kinds of questions that you ask at a dinner party and totally derail the conversation. Like, episodes include, when do you know it's time to stop drinking? Does anyone like their job? How do you survive fame with Molly Ringwald? What are we going to do with all these cats? About feral cats and how they affect nature. And wait. Is it unsafe to drink the water on airplanes? No, but you should definitely listen to the episode to find out more. 
I love listening to this show, and I usually find myself smiling the whole way through. And there's also at least one moment each episode where there's a line of writing that makes me hit pause and rewind just to admire the turn of phrase. If you find this world bewildering, but also sometimes enjoy being bewildered by it, check out Search Engine. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman, and I host a podcast called Design Matters from the TED Audio Collective. Every episode, I have conversations with designers, writers, artists, and other luminaries of contemporary thought. People like Roman Mars, Ai Weiwei, Ethan Hawke, and Ashley Ford. We not only talk about their crafts, but how they design the arc of their lives, what they've learned, what obstacles they've overcome and how they've done it, and how they see the world. Join us for an inquiry into the broader world of creative culture. Find and follow Design Matters with Debbie Millman wherever you're listening to this. Ooh, it's time to go to confession. (laughs) Time to go. We're at Death, Sex, Money on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us while you're there. On the next episode, we share some of your stories about dating right now. Dating has been really weird really freaking weird. I've done all kinds of dates. I've had a first date at Costco. Highly recommend. Before this pandemic happened, I had set myself a New Year's resolution for 2020 to have six dates. And I got four. But now I'm stuck here in my apartment with my cats, not knowing what the hell the future holds. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. After Tony got the results of his paternity test, things moved fast. He called the mother. And I asked her if she knew who the the father was, and she said, I think so. Did she sound surprised? She sounded caught. Did you feel angry with her? Yeah. Yeah, I felt pretty upset. I just didn't know what to think at all. I didn't know whether to be mad or sad or relief in some weird way. So I I wasn't like, you know, wasn't screaming at her over the phone or anything. I just said, you need to figure out who the father is and tell him. The second I heard her on the phone, I had kind of known whatever was going on had, had changed completely. This is Victor. He has dark eyes and a history with the same woman as Tony. Victor heard from her right after Tony got the test results. She asked me to go over there, and I said, okay. So I just went up there, and I walked in the door. There was my daughter, and not another word about it. I actually just kind of sat there with her for a while. Did she respond to you like you were a stranger? Oddly, no. I mean, it was it was kind of a, you know, we just, I mean, with my daughter, you know, one thing anybody can attest to is that she'll she'll make sure you guys are friends no matter what, you know, whether you want to or not. So She's super social. Yeah. So, I mean, she <laughs> – to say, you know, that she was totally responsive in a way that, you know, she, she realized there was some connection, I don't know because I've seen her do that with people at the grocery store. So <laughs> – Before all of this happened, Tony and Victor didn't know each other. 
even though they live in the same town and were both single guys hanging around the bar scene. When Victor heard about the pregnancy, he wondered if he could be the father. But he heard that Tony was the dad, so he let it go. Then the baby was born, and Victor saw pictures of her on Facebook through her mother's account. As soon as I saw the pictures, it was kind of like an overwhelming reality for me. Did you think the little girl looked like you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Victor started mentioning his suspicions to other people they knew. But getting proof? That was complicated. I had had discussed it with her friends before. I said, I need your help to do this. Like, just give me a piece of hair from a brush and I'll go do the rest. You know, I'll I'll take care of everything. Um, Called the state and they're like, well, you can't just go... DNA test kids that you think look like you. And I'm like, okay, well. You uh, called. Yeah, I called a bunch. Um, Do you feel like shame about that, that you didn't, that you didn't find a way to step in sooner or you just didn't know how? Yeah, there'll always be that, you know, small sense of shame. I was kind of like, something needs to be done and now how do I do it? How do I do it without, you know, just leaving behind a trail of destruction for two families, possibly three, you know, in in terms of, you know, what if I'm wrong? You know, there was always that outside chance. Even though I saw her face, I saw everything going on, I had known the timelines, everything like that. What if I was wrong? The one time I did meet my daughter, my family went to breakfast on Father's Day and somebody yelled my name from behind me, and I turned around, and it was um, my baby's mother and my child sitting at a table with her family for Father's Day. So I went over and said hello, and I think I just stared, like, just like Hawkeye-ing um, the kid. And I don't even remember what. The irony. Uh, I don't even remember what the mother said, and I was like, I'm sitting here on Father's Day looking at my kid, and my whole family sitting behind me. And I went over to my brother and I sat down. He's like, is that, the mo- is that, you know, mom? I said, yeah. And he's like, well, what are we doing? I was like, you shut up. Because if my mom finds out, then this place is going to get torn apart. <laughs> <laughs> she even, like, smells that kid. We're going to have a problem. So, yeah, I just sat and I was quiet. And I think that was probably one of the longest breakfasts I ever had in my life. Did you know that? I didn't know that. You didn't? Yeah. That was it. No. I spent Father's Day, weirdly enough, while you were doing that, I was probably researching the DNA test because I remember I didn't have her for the morning and that was like <laughs> on my on my brain around that time. A lot of wheels turning on Father's Day that year, I guess. Yeah, it was a big day. <laughs> Hearing Tony and Victor laugh together like this, it was not what I expected when I first heard about this story in an email from Tony. Disputes about paternity, I thought, pit men against each other. Like, there's not a more potent threat to masculinity than thinking you fathered a child and being wrong. But that's not how it was with Tony and Victor. From the first time they met over beers, it was just a few days after Tony found out the truth. I was really nervous, and um, I just, you know, was praying that he was a good guy. We were both upset. We were both hurt, you know, mad. So I think we actually took that, those two emotions, like all those emotions that we both had um, and somehow rolled it into a bit of a positive thing that was 
you know, when you're sitting there feeling that way by yourself, you can just, it can snowball. But seeing somebody else feel that way, it's kind of like, okay, you know, I'm not the only person that's going through this. So maybe I can empathize instead of just sit here and focus on how mad I am. So. So you looked at Tony as a guy who understood in a way that many other people couldn't. Exactly. You know, I think the first time we met, we joked about like, man, I just wish we could do this together, <laughs> you know? Like, this is working out well. This is, this is raise a child together. Yeah. <laughs> this is going great. Let's just do this thing. When you, when you first started talking about what the next steps were, how did you talk together about which roles of a father which of you were going to do? Um, what I wanted Tony to know initially was that, you know, I'd, I'd love him to stay involved in any capacity that he felt comfortable. Never wanted him to feel like, you know, he was being shooed away from from my side of the family. Um, and the way I initially thought about it is, is just what's wrong with having more people around a lover, you know? Why would there be an issue with that? That's what Tony thought, too, at first. I thought that I would still be a part of her life, but that I would play definitely a lesser role. And what did you picture when you pictured that? I pictured taking her to go get a cheeseburger and some ice cream and or go to a basketball game or something, you know, long term. That could be my role as just like an uncle. When did you notice that she was becoming aware that there was something changing? Well, when we introduced Victor in, um, it was obviously a new adult in her life. Um, and then he was assuming roles and doing things that we would be doing, you know, picking her up from daycare and cooking dinner, hanging out. And when she would call me dad, you know, it was like, oh, there's a new thing that I need to like figure out. Do I tell her not to call me dad or do we just let that happen naturally? And then I obviously saw her a little bit less and less and she was a little confused. How you know, did you tell? She was just a little more distracted. I don't know how to explain it. I mean, you're a parent, you know, she could read me like a book and I could read her the same way. And, you know, she would look to me like, what's, what's the deal, man? You know, I haven't, I seen you in a week and you could feel that, you know, and I knew that it was only going to get longer and longer. So that was, that was really hard for me. That transition was, and then it just got to a point where I just couldn't do it at all. It was too hard. Yeah. It was just like reliving that same thing over and over again. And just, I just felt like I was breaking our trust every time, you know, like I was letting her down. So it was your choice to yeah. change that. And Victor was transitioning more and more into it. And so, you know, he was doing a good job in filling that role. It just felt like time to just maybe try to move on. 
or just let it be them, let them figure it out for a while, you know, without me in the picture. Victor, did you, when Tony told you that it was too hard for him to have regular visits with your daughter, Mm -hmm. that he was thought it would be at best to step out of her life, did you worry about what, what that would mean for your daughter to lose him? I don't think, like I said, the, the more people that we had to love her, the better. It was, and I was excited about that. Um, but at no point did I feel like anybody walked away from anything that was, you know, not understandable. And also, I think that, you know, we all knew that we were all going to be there when we needed to. So I, I, filling in for that spot, I didn't feel like there was a hole left. Um, it just kind of put the pressure on me. This is going to change for her, and it can't affect her. You know, so I've got to do this. I've, I've got to step in and be who I need to be. And I was just, I was ready to be there. You know, I, I had kind of been sitting, watching for a long time and, and seeing everything transpire. And so I was ready to get in. Victor started paying child support. Tony stopped. Between them, they decided to treat it like they were square. So Victor didn't reimburse Tony or anything like that. But he did take a truckload of baby stuff off Tony's hands when Tony was beginning to try to move on. I had a baby dresser, crib, chair, tons of toys. You know, it's what a baby's room looks like. And so rather than him spend all this money and buy new things, it made sense just to have the things that she already loved and cared about. And so one day he just came over to my house and backed his truck into my driveway and I just unloaded everything into his truck and that was, I mean, physically and literally all in one afternoon became pretty real, you know, to just put everything in boxes and then just give it to this guy. You loaded up the truck together? Mm-hmm. Did you cry? Um, like around him? <laughs> no. No. I think we just shook hands. How long has it been since you saw your little girl? Probably two years. Why so long? I just don't, I don't know how to approach it now. You know what I mean? Because I'm trying to put closure on all this. And I'll love her forever for what we had, but we don't have that anymore. Are there things that you want Victor to know about this little girl when she was a little baby? I've never really thought about that. If he ever needed to know anything about it or was curious, then I would tell him. But, yeah, I don't know. I think that part is, is my, my time with her. and um, She was an amazing little baby, you know. She's still an amazing girl, and... I think he already knows that. So, I mean, as far as specific goes, there's, if he was ever curious, I would tell him in a heartbeat, but nothing off the top of my head that I'm, you know, Yeah, those, gonna me- go those memories to. still belong to him. I mean, those are, you know, he's the one that was putting the work and the time in those situations. It's not, without him volunteering the information, you know, it's like asking somebody what their favorite parts of their ex-girlfriend was, and, you know, and there's, 
it's it's just it's information that's there that um if it's that good and it's that worth talking about then he'll talk to me about it i mean he could have told me that she farts like a truck driver but (laughs) (laughs) that's a (laughs) no-brainer yeah (laughs) that would have been nice heads up (laughs) yeah sorry about that That's Tony and Victor. Since we first shared this episode in 2017, Tony left town for a while, but he's since returned and lives not too far from Victor. When we wrote to Tony about sharing this episode again, he told me about driving by Victor's work, looking for his pickup, and noticing the little girl, who's now nine years old, walking out the front door. It was the first time I'd seen her in probably six years, Tony wrote. I thought about how I don't even know what her voice sounds like. I thought about how big that moment was in seeing her for the first time and how I would just keep driving to the next mundane appointment of my day. I wondered if she'll ever know our little story and how it will be told to her, if so. Thanks again to Tony and Victor. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I produced this episode in 2017 along with Katie Bishop and Chester Jesus Soria. The rest of our team includes Afi Yellow Duke, Yasmin Khan, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Emily Tafour. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Thanks to Cat Moon in Baltimore, Maryland, for being a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Cat and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org/slash donate. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And on our Facebook page right now, you'll see the posting for a paid internship with the Death, Sex, and Money team this summer. You do not need to be based in New York City to do it. Go check it out if you're interested. Remote internships are one perk of our current situation. But listening back to this episode definitely made me miss being able to travel to do interviews like this one in Tony's living room. Do you think about becoming a father again? Yeah, I think about it. Something you want? I don't know. My mother will hate to hear that. (laughs) If I find someone who I love and want to have a baby with, then, yeah, I could totally do that. I just don't see it in my near future. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. It's opinion palooza season here at Slate. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, the host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court. As this Supreme Court term hurdles towards its close, the justices are handing down decisions that will shape our politics and our lives for years and decades to come. 
my team and I are putting out analysis of the biggest cases just as quickly as we can bound to our closets and fire up our laptops to speak to you. From presidential immunity to social media content regulation to domestic abusers' gun rights, we will be here unpacking the news for you. Listen to Amicus wherever you get your podcasts.